A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky All right, good morning. How's everybody doing? My name is Ricky. I'm the pastor here, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 9 through 21 today. And if you need a Bible, raise your hands and we will get one to you. And while you guys are getting your Bibles flipping that way and we're handing Bibles out, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer one last time. And so, Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, um, Father, excited that our families get to, Lord, worship with us this morning. That, God, we know that um, there are some of us here, I know that I've been in this place, I might have even considered that an inconvenience. But, Lord, we pray that you would help us remember, Lord, the importance, Father, of raising up the next generations, Lord, to love you and to cherish you. And, Father, that's not always done by word, but Father, it's done by example of worship, and so I pray that you would allow our kids today to see, Lord, the importance of your word, that Father, they would see us cherish and love your word and worship you today, that Lord, they might be impacted by that for many years to come, and God, for those of us who are able to listen, Father, and consume your word, we pray that you'd lend us the Holy Spirit so we might have understanding, Lord, that we would be Father, not condemned, but convicted to be more like your son as we head out of this church today. And we ask for all these things in your name. Amen. All right. So, welcome to, for those of you who are new, still a little bit of ringing back here, guys. Um, And welcome to those of you who are viewing online. Um, If you are new here or haven't been tracking with us for any time, we have been going verse by verse through the book of Matthew together. And just a revisal of the book overall is the book of Matthew is specifically written to remind the Jewish people and to remind the reader today that Jesus was the awaited Messiah. He is God, holy God, holy man. He is perfect in all things. And as we go through that, we can see Matthew specifically remind us throughout the entire book that Jesus is in fact that awaited Messiah, which was one of the major questions, if not the most major question of the time. As you get through the book of Matthew, there are five major points throughout the book. You have the Sermon on the Mount, which we covered, which for those of you who haven't been here, the Sermon on the Mount is considered, even in the world of academia, to be If somebody could live out the Sermon on the Mount, that would be the most well-rounded and most level-headed individual on earth. The Sermon on the Mount is the psychologist's goal for any of their clients. If we could get here, we have arrived. Jesus provides us very sound and applicable wisdom there. We just got through commissioning the apostles, which for us, we got to see how Jesus intends, at least in part, how ministry could be walked out for those that are following him. And then we are getting ready to get into, in the next coming weeks, uh, the kingdom parables. And then after that, we'll see a discourse on childlikeness. And then finally, the Olivet Discourse, which is 
um, in the Mount of Olives. But last week, as we're getting down into this, and as we're uh, getting into more of this text today, what we see in this particular section in chapters 11 and 12 is that the hostility against the ministry of Jesus is going to accelerate at this time. That... As we read through this, we can be reminded that it's not just today's world that hates the words and ministry of Jesus, but Jesus has been despised forever. The Father's will for man, the Father overall, has been despised since the beginning of time. And today, and like we saw last week, we're going to see a group of leaders who were supposed to be pointing the people of Israel to God despise the words of Jesus and actually commit their mind to destroy him. And so last week we saw Jesus in the Sabbath, part one, and we saw that he desires mercy over sacrifice. And today we're going to look at part two as we see the subtitle, God's love for man in the topic of the Sabbath. And so with that, let me see, are we here? Yeah. If you are in Matthew chapter 12 and at verse 9, would you say amen? I should probably find it myself. And right here. Okay. It says, He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, stretch out, or he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles and he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. In his name, the Gentiles will, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So, that is the text that we're covering today. And as we get into this, I think it would be wise for us to acknowledge something as we get into today's text. I'm going to move forward a little bit because it seems like every time I move back, it wants to scream at me is Jesus is in a conversation with the Pharisees as they are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. Now, as we get into this, there might be some who would make the mistake of assuming that Jesus is not honoring the Sabbath and he's encouraging the disciples and he's encouraging the readers not to honor the Sabbath. That is not the case here in this text. What Jesus is actually doing to the Pharisees' false accusations is reminding them that there are still things that we can do in order to honor God as God has a loving intention in the institution of the Sabbath. 
A Sabbath is not a day to do nothing. A Sabbath is a day to honor God with our bodies and mind as we remove ourselves from our monetary and professional striving. So when it comes to a Sabbath, as we get into this, this isn't a day where we would sit down and sit on our hands and accomplish absolutely nothing. I believe there are many people in this room that that version of the Sabbath would drive you absolutely mad. Is I would still like to go out into the garden and exercise my hands. That brings me peace and that brings me joy, but that's still not your regular work. The Pharisees had taken the Sabbath to an extent that a man could probably not do much more than just breathe on the day. And so he is accusing Jesus, or they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath for collecting food in the previous text. And today they're going to set him up and accuse him for breaking the Sabbath for making a man well today. And in the Sabbath, we will see that God doesn't desire that our rest would be selfish either. The Pharisees had also taught the people and taught themselves in their own prideful striving to turn a day of rest as supposed to glorify God into a day that was somehow selfish and still self-edifying. That in our rest, we would remember not to neglect others or use it as a religious check mark. This is a day that we remove ourselves from the work that we are committed to, to put food on our tables during the week so that we would love God because that is the first and greatest commandment and to love others. Are you guys tracking with me? So with that, let's go ahead and start breaking down the text today. So verse nine, we see he went on from there and he entered their synagogue. Now, last week to this week is just a straight on continuation of the conversation that we just had. Jesus is moving from this accusatory conversation and goes to the synagogue of the men who just accused him of breaking the Sabbath. Now, the first question for those of you who are in here are reading this, they're like, okay, so let me, let me try to break this down. You might ask, did Jesus continue to the synagogue in order to teach them and others more about the Sabbath? Jesus would have absolutely, in the fact that he is God, foreknown the interactions that were laying before him. But as we get into that, this is something that I want to encourage you guys to not do, is that when Scripture doesn't speak to something, we need to be careful not to make something of nothing. And when Scripture does say something, we should have the faith in knowledge to reside in what the word provides us. And so while we can wonder, why in the world would Jesus move from this interaction and then go to the um, synagogue where they were? Is Jesus being antagonistic? Is Jesus trying to extend a learning lesson? We can come up with all of these whys, but in here, while we can have those questions, the word is faithful to at least answer this one today, and we'll look at it in a minute, but in the latter verses, it tells us exactly why Jesus continued on in this, and we'll see that it is to accomplish the will of the Father and to fulfill a prophecy that Isaiah spoke earlier. And so if you look at this text and you say, well, why in the world would Jesus continue to go to the place with his accusers? Well, it tells us later that it was to fulfill prophecy spoken by one of God's prophets in the Old Testament. So in any case, let's move on to verse 10. Jesus has now just moved into the synagogue here. And the thing we see is that these Pharisees would practice cruel manipulation 
in this place. Verse 10 reads, and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? It's sad to see that the Pharisees have continued to let their lives be led by the enemy. They've just had this interaction with Jesus and had this, uh, this false attempt to try to accuse the Savior of sin, and he's been so gracious to remind them of God's love in his word. But now they double down, and they're choosing to use a man who is already struck down by the repercussions of sin in the world, and they're going to try to use him to cripple the ministry of Jesus here. Now, Jesus is coming into the synagogue, and I would say that it's important to note that Jesus does not approach the man with the withered hand. They come to Jesus with this predicament, again, so that they can try to manipulate it and embarrass him or belittle his ministry. The Pharisees, knowing Jesus' compassion for the less fortunate, they plotted to try to use God's love against himself. These men have been watching Jesus for some time now, and they've even, again, been blessed by the gracious answer in the previous verses. But still, even at witnessing all of this love perfectly displayed, after watching all of these miracles, they've still chosen to make Jesus their enemy. In the hardness of their hearts, they came to the synagogue not to perform their spiritual obligations, but to continue to demonize the Savior they should have been looking to identify. Not only have they missed the mark on looking for the Savior, but they've instead become obsessed with calling good evil. Scripture would describe these Pharisees very well when it says that professing to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1, 21 through 23 literally says, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And while <clears throat> they weren't worshiping carven images in the way that we think they were, they were certainly worshiping themselves and the glory of their ministry. God stood before them and they were totally unwilling to be submitted to him. In this blind obsession, <clears throat> they chose to do something that would have been potentially cruel had Jesus not been who Jesus is. They seek to break down the ministry of our Lord by using the less fortunate. Imagine the spiritual and mental torment that would have come from the situation from the man with the withered hand. Just consider this for a moment. Everybody in this area knows who Jesus is. This man is crippled in some sense, and he sees Jesus walk into the synagogue where he is. Imagine the hope that would have risen up in him at that moment to, say, to see the one man who could make him well is now with him. Now he's in the synagogue surrounded by rulers who are supposed to seek out the good, or at least raise men up to see God, and at this moment of hope, what the leaders have instead chose to do is to use his situation to remove hope entirely. Is now, this man who would have thought, Jesus can heal me, 
sees that he is now being used as a tool to make sure that Jesus doesn't do something wrong. Imagine being put in a situation where you could be made well, but the wicked rulers of the synagogue or the church are now making it so that you cannot be well because they would choose to proclaim their own ministry over the ministry of Christ. These Pharisees were doing something astoundingly evil in not only accusing Jesus of being evil himself, but removing hope from the people who should have been looking for God in the first place. I can't imagine sitting there seeing Jesus who's potentially able to heal me, seeing those who I'm supposed to look up to, but now I'm the device of contention stuck between them, and now they're saying, Jesus, you can't heal this man because it's the Sabbath. What is this man supposed to do? We're not sure if they considered or just completely didn't consider this man's emotions at this time, but I'm sure this would have been strenuous to say the least. Do I hope or do I not hope? Is Jesus gonna heal me or is he not gonna heal me? What's happening? Is he ever gonna be allowed to? If they let Jesus walk right now, will I ever be made well? What's going through his mind? They did not care. But I think in this, a question we have to ask ourselves is we should more appropriately compare ourselves to those who are less than Christ as leaders, parents, mentors. Are we cautious of our pride? Are we careful to not let our pride cause those looking up to us to stumble? As these men in their prideful endeavors were keeping people from being ministered to by Jesus, and I know this seems strange to ask this question as we're looking at the Pharisees in the synagogue, but we as leaders, believers, church pastors, leaders, whatever it is you want to call it, can make the same mistake that in our own striving, we can actually keep people from seeing Christ entirely because we want to be the one who is edified. We want to be the one who is seen. We want to be the one who is honored. And their eyes become captivated on us, but they don't get to see the one who can truly actually make them well. And the reason I say leaders, parents, and mentors is oftentimes in the leadership of the church, we stop at the pastors and elders. But brothers and sisters, this is a responsibility of every person in this room who has the opportunity to speak into somebody else's life. Those of you who have little ones, your little ones are looking up to you to see what it is that you believe and what it is that you think. And the counsel that you're giving them and the lives that you're living, are you showing that you worship and believe in the one true God or do you actually believe that you can make right every situation? And can I say as a man to the other men in this room who it's our responsibility to provide for our wives and for our children, it's very easy to convey that it is by our strength that the home is made well. But are we conveying at all to our children that it is by God's strength alone that we have the blessings our home has at all? It's not by my 40 hours a week or 40 plus hours. There's some in here who thought, mm, you only work 40 hours, I work 100. That's the problem right there. If you thought that, that's the problem. The only reason you have the opportunity to work 100 hours because God blessed you with the physical body and mind to work the 100 hours in the first place. You provide nothing that God hasn't provided you first. 
do we convey that with every aspect of our lives? These men had stepped between the man with the withered hand and the Savior to try to make a point. But thankfully, Jesus wouldn't allow that for, for long at all. But are we careful to ensure that Jesus is seen well before we ever would be? And can I, can I say this? Because godly leadership is a strange thing. For those of us who are leaders, we know that it is a delicate balance. Godly leadership still requires excellence or at least the striving for excellence. There's a balance in godly leadership versus the leadership of the world. We need to ensure that God is seen and not us, and it's only a balance that can be found by a leader who is meek. If you are, or if you believe that you are a leader working on behalf of God, if you are not meek, I promise you it is not God who is seen through the hands of your ministry. We still strive for excellence. God's creation needs to see the attributes of God clearly displayed through those who in their position make the same claim as Paul. And we need to acknowledge this. When we claim or we move into a position of authority in whatever it is, we are making the same claim as Paul, follow me as I walk after Christ. Whether you verbally say it or not, that is what your position implies. And are you teaching others to follow you as you follow after Christ? And it's a blessed statement because it implies that you're still learning too. Paul doesn't say, follow me as I'm standing by Christ. He says, follow me as I'm walking after him myself. Godly leadership still strives for honor. Even the right kind of honor from men can be an indicator of God's choosing to bless us with honor. And why do I say that? Because there's some, there are some who, again, this is a delicate line, who shoot for the wrong kind, who strive for excellence so that they would receive the accolades of men. But then there are some who would say that no honor should ever be striven for. Well, that's not true. We see God do that in the Old Testament. If you guys want to see where we're getting that from, that's Joshua 3, 7. The Lord institutes Joshua to be a leader over the people. And what does he say? Today, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they might know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Those who are faithful leaders, God will exalt, not so that they could see Joshua, but so that they could see God's faithful hand working through Joshua. And so for those of us that are in ministry and we're striving for like excellence, don't be afraid to strive for honor, but what you're striving for is God's honor, not man's. And so many of these Mistakes have been made by these Pharisees and this is why they've landed here in this place is that they've grown accustomed to the accolades of men and they found themselves comfortable there and now they're terrified and in their sin unwilling to release what is not theirs. We must always be willing to check to see if the things we have achieved are done by our abiding and our obedience and our worship of God. We need to evaluate that we haven't begun to strive for the honor of men, but for 
God's acknowledgement and his alone. So with that, why do I say that? It's not the position of the Pharisees or the leader that's the problem here. It's the prideful motivation that's causing all of the problems. I say that because a lot of times when we speak about the Pharisees, we automatically make this general statement that all Pharisees are the worst. No, there were, <laughs> there were God-fearing, God-believing Pharisees. The title of Pharisee is not the problem. It's the hearts of these wicked men who hold the title that are the problem. They've missed the mark and deceived many. They've made it so that they can't see God in the middle of their ministry. And we need to be cautious that we're not doing the same. And the Pharisees are teaching us this lesson here. Then 11 through 13, it says, And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. Here, two times they've, they've tried to attack the Savior verbally with these false accusations. And again, Jesus still being gracious reminds them of God's intention and reminds them of their contradiction when it comes to their made up restrictions. Last week, we talked about the law and the Sabbath. But last week, we looked at specifically some of the rabbinical institutions that they had applied in addition to the Sabbath. And we talked about all the weird and strange things that they told people they couldn't do. Last week, our uh, example was an instrument. If you wanted to play your instrument and it was a stringed instrument and one string was out of tune, you could not put that one string into tune because you would have been breaking the law of completion. And because you were breaking the law of completion, that was the same in their minds as having just built a guitar that day. They said, so, because it fits within this construct of definition, you can't do that either. And so today, as we're taking on these, or looking at what it is that Jesus is addressing here in terms of these man-made laws and man-made stipulations and guidelines, according to the rabbinical law that at this time on the Sabbath, you were not permitted to write or erase. Now, when you look at it, you're like, okay, so are you talking about writing an essay? Or are you talking about writing notes? Like, what are you talking about? Writing forming meaningful characters or design. That means you can't write the letters that are included in your alphabet. This isn't talking about completing a, a long form sentence. This is saying you can't create on paper any form of the alphabet. And then when it comes to erasing, the level is just as extreme. It's cleaning or preparing a service to render it usable for writing. So you can't even prepare a place to begin to be able to write in the first place at all. According to the rabbinical standards, you could not do anything on the day of the Sabbath. Now, I will say it's easy to chuckle as we look at these restrictions. You're like, man, how in the world, did, how does anybody land there? Well, I think in terms of us trying to understand the minds of the rabbis at the time, these in, these restrictions may have been instituted to keep a workaholic from overworking. The problem, though, is, is God desires our loving devotion, not our obligated participation. 
And so here, because our culture is not so different than other cultures in many aspects, is we, in our attempts to gain more, can tend to overwork for things that we don't actually need. I think we know what that means today, as many of our houses are full of things that we don't actually need, and we've tended to work well beyond what is necessary so that we can go and purchase a bunch of stuff that really at the end of the day, if the power shut down, we don't need most of that stuff. Target thrives on the things that people don't need. The dollar store thrives on the things that people don't need. Thrift shops, it's secondhand garbage. It's the stuff that people realize that they don't need, but then somebody's like, I know somebody else who's gonna want this garbage, so I'm gonna sell it two times. And they do so well. I don't literally think it's garbage, but for the sake of the conversation here, is we fill our homes from edge to edge with a bunch of stuff that we don't actually need. The word tells us, if you have food and you have a shirt on your back, that is all that you need. And God is sufficient to sustain and to satisfy us in all other aspects of life. Everything else is an accessory. But the reason I say that, they we can tend to overwork and we need to be reminded that we need to not overwork and remember to worship God in our free time. Not even our free time. We need to make time to worship the Lord. Is I told Annie I was gonna use this example. The, was it last night? It was last night, right? So uh, we're, a commercial came across to us talking about a Chick-fil-A sandwich that just came out. She's like, man, you know how much money they would make if they would just open on Sunday? Right, everybody in here is laughing. We're like, they'd probably make a killing. I would rebuttal that and say, just like we had a good conversation last night, is consider this, they make more money than every other fast food franchise in the country, and they lose a day. Assuming that being open would make them more money is also assuming that God hasn't been the one sufficient to provide for that company. And so for us, we can apply that same thinking to ourselves as we can consider Sabbath Sunday or whatever day it is, because not all of us get to take a Sabbath on a Sunday. We can consider our day of rest as loss, or we can remember that God is sufficient to provide for our needs and consider the day of rest as gain, as the Lord instituted it so that we would see that he is good. Don't be tempted with the dollars that you might be losing. Remember how good and faithful God has been even when you cannot work. He's kindly reminding them and those listening that the standard found in God's love and his law and his word is high. His love is clearly displayed in the preservation of life. Sorry, I have totally skipped a note here. Sorry. So they've instituted these things so that they wouldn't overwork. And then I ended that with a God desires our loving devotion and not our obligated participation. As we're talking about the Sabbath, I don't want you to think, pastor said I have to take a day off, so now that I have to. The rabbis would go and they would institute these laws to ensure that nobody would work. The problem is, if God desires our love and affection, we actually have to desire and love the fact that we have an opportunity to rest and see that God is good. That's the difference. It's just because nobody was legally allowed to work doesn't mean that anybody was worshiping. 
Just because you have to go to church doesn't mean that you're worshiping God when you get there. Just because you have to tithe, again, depends on what family you grew up in. Just because you have to doesn't mean that you're doing it as an offering. You're doing all of these things out of obligation. We need to make sure that we are worshiping the Lord with every part of our lives. Now, he gets to this, and again, he's reminding them of God's love and his rebuttal here. And we're talking about the Sabbath. We're talking about commandments. We're talking about things that we must do. And there's some of you here, it's like, is it really that important that I love these things? Well, flip over to Psalm 119. We're going to pick up in verse 1. because I'm sure there are some here, as I've thought before, is, is this really that important? If you're in Psalm 119, one, would you say amen? It says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So we're gonna pause right there. I want you to notice this. Blessing does not come by obligated attendance. Blessing comes when we desire what the Lord desires and we walk in obedience to his word. There are many people who believe that at the moment of raising their hand for salvation that the blessings are going to overflow. But God makes it very clear that blessings do require or are attached to something else and that is faithful obedience to his word. Picking back up here, it says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, that I shall not put them to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes, but do not utterly forsake me. Or sir, I will keep your statutes, do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all the riches." I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I might live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So, as we're talking about the Sabbath, as we're talking about commandments, as we're talking about God's intention in all of this, we do have to ask the question as we've just finished reading this. Do we struggle with the idea that we're supposed to love the commands of God? 
do we, when we read through the word of God, struggle to see freedom in it? Let's have a real conversation for two seconds, and I think this is something that the world has done exceptionally well at teaching mine, especially mine in the previous generations, is that the law and word and restrictions found in God's word are not loving, but they are unloving, and it is an unjust and hateful God that applies them. This is a common struggle, one that almost every, if not every man, struggles with, but freedom comes with a realization about God's intention in his word. Now, level with me here. How many of you have ever read the word and you're like, man, if I actually do all of this, I'm gonna miss out on so much in life? I've got two, three, how about over here? I got one, yeah. When we read through the word, we're like, man, this is a... This is a really high and holy standard. If I actually strive for this, I'm going to watch the world blow past me and just completely pass me by. I'm not sure if that's something I want to do. When we evaluate it that way, God's word actually looks extremely restrictive. But at the end of the day, we do have to come to a realization about something is what is it that we want and what is it that we want to see? If I want the things of this world, if I want what everybody else has around me, and I would remind you that there are an abundant amount of examples of those who have achieved everything in this world and still found that they are lacking everything. You guys have probably heard me quote this before, but Jim Carrey would even know it. I wish, I wish everyone could become rich and famous to find that it is not satisfying at all. If that's what we want, then the word of God is absolutely restrictive as the word of God does, requires our heart. But if we realize that there is freedom in it, we have to see that God has provided a structure for holiness to remove us as much from the world's heartache as possible that we inflict on ourselves all the time. Biblical freedom is realized when God pulls us from misery and confusion. Life becomes simpler when I begin to understand the repercussion free way of life God created us for. I'm taught to love God's commands as I put my faith and trust in the hands of a God that I know desires the best for me. So what does that mean? God's way and call is to be holy and it is to be righteous. But God's way of life per design has significantly less to zero complication. When I walk and speak in truth, I don't have to worry about what it is that I've said to anybody ever. When I walk in love and grace, I don't have to worry about how I've treated anybody ever. When I walk in forgiveness as much as the Lord would allow me, I don't have to worry about how I feel about others ever. Now, mind you, there's nobody in here who gets to say ever as we're all being sanctified and we're walking towards that. But this standard that we have become so afraid of in this world because the world's taught us we should be afraid of this standard. There's freedom in it because I don't have to worry about any of the things the world has to worry about. I don't have to worry about if I have a child somewhere. 
I don't have to worry about whether that child might be mine or not. I don't have to worry about disease. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to get away with fraud. I don't have to worry about, this list can go on and on and on and on and on. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to raise my kids. The Word's already told me how to do that. I don't worry about, I don't have to worry about how I can honor God with my relationship. I don't actually have to worry about how I can have a loving relationship because the prescription is clearly given. But when we go to the world's standards that it is simply based on self-satisfaction, I can find self-satisfaction anywhere. We've been able to prove that a mind can find satisfaction in the most unsatisfactory conditions should you teach it to do it. It seems like it's rigorous and it seems like we're missing out on, it, on everything, but we're not missing out on anything. What we are actually missing out on in our sin is freedom of mind and spirit. I'm missing out on peace. I'm missing out on honor. I'm missing out on worth. All of these things that God has given us. Jesus has done another amazing job of helping us see God's loving intention should we, his, should we apply his commandments appropriately to our lives. His law is a constant reminder of our need for God as well as a constant reminder that we can always do better loving what God loves. When we read God's word and I see that I don't care for the things God cares about, that shouldn't be a condemning thought. It should say, Lord, teach me to love what it is that you love. If you really do love this person who I despise, I need to learn to love that person. Do you, can you imagine going into a workplace anxiety-free because you don't despise a person in there? Just imagine that for a minute. We have been taught very well to despise our coworkers and especially our managers until you become one. And then you're like, oh man, this job, no wonder everybody hates this guy. I don't want to be this guy anymore. But we've been taught to despise everybody. And then we come to find out when I despise everybody and I hate everything that they say and do, all of a sudden my workday is miserable because I can't accept anything. Imagine how many marriages would be restored if we would choose to love and forgive instead of withholding every single resenting and bitter thing that person has ever expressed. Imagine. Imagine the kind of loving care our children would get to see if they would see their parents choose to express forgiveness rather than fight for winning the argument. He's done an amazing job of weeding through the wickedness of these men's hearts to reveal love is at the very least lacking within them. Paul, Paul would say, if I have, if I lack love, I don't have anything. I become a clanging symbol. And these men have become, at the very least, a clanging symbol. And in verse 14, we see that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So blind that at this gracious response and at the healing of this man, they let hate multiply and they sought how they would destroy him. Evidence that it is only spiritual revelation that can alter the heart of a stubborn and deceived man. 
evidence that there is an evil that exists in this world that abounds outside of the parameters of rationality. It's amazing the kind of hate that man can cultivate out of something as good as the Sabbath. I had a conversation with my son yesterday talking about the evil that we live in. Is he in here? Yeah, he actually understood. Are you waiting for me to say something embarrassing? You're looking like you're waiting for me to say something embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing embarrassing. It was a good conversation yesterday. But we started walking through how culture is so opposed, not to the church, because I think that's secondary. The world is opposed to the God that we love. And there is an evil that's trying to not extinguish the church. There's an evil that's trying to extinguish God's creation. We have to remember that God has intimately created every man and woman that walks the face of this earth. And we need to stop evaluating like the enemy's coming for the church. No, the enemy's coming for God's creation. The church is just part of it. We have let go of so much of what's really important that we are now, there's a tangible presence of panic within the Christian community in our country. Because we've seen how far things are going. We see where they're going. And it's something that I have particularly grown tired of. And it's interesting because I keep getting involved in these meetings. But politics are not our answer, period. They never will be. The leadership that we have come to rely on so much in this country is completely unable, even if they wanted to, to fix what the real problem is today. Politics and popular culture reflect the heart of our nation. Call it a Christian nation if you want, it is not. The generation coming will yield fruit unlike anything we have ever seen. We didn't take seriously the command to make disciples and to raise a child in the way they should go as parents. And now there is a tangible panic among the redeemed of what they see being practiced in our public square. The most important parts of our community are parents, pastors, and teachers. They're the ones that are supposed to be teaching kids about God's goodness and God's glory. And if kids would understand as they're raised up that God is good and he is faithful and he is gracious, the inevitable overflow would be in our politics and in our pop culture. But a world, those worlds that are invaded with godless minds can't redeem the godless back to a godly form. We, it is our responsibility to fight for the lost, to fight for the redeemed, and to see God be faithful in those places that we might see his tangible presence and fruit. To give you an idea so that I'm not making this up here, how many of you have heard of the University of Exeter? 
Anybody in here heard of that? No? It is the first in the UK. The University of Exeter is offering a master's degree in the magic and the occult sciences. The new postgraduate program will start on sep- in September 2024, purposefully right before Halloween. Brothers and sisters, we have to, and I'm attaching this to the Sabbath for a reason. And I'm I'm attaching it to the word of God for a reason. This is going to continue to escalate. And it will continue to escalate in your homes. It will continue to escalate in your schools. It will continue to escalate everywhere that you reside. If we do not start prioritizing our relationship with the Lord, if we don't start practicing a purposeful love for God and his word and his way of life, the generation that's watching us right now will care for it even less than we do. For those of us who are probably a little bit older than myself and younger, we are on the tail end of the most church generation ever. That generation is marked by church attendance, but it is certainly not marked by godly faithfulness. And there's a group of men and women who have absolutely come to despise the church and despise God, and they are on a rampage teaching the following generations that God is worthless because they watch a group of men and women try to institute the church like the Pharisees are trying to institute the law wholly apart from God's love. We have to let God's love lead our homes. We have to let God's love be our motivation. And if God's love is true within us, we have to love the things that God has given us. Jesus is not railing against the Sabbath. He's just saying there's a right way to do it. And he tells them, Because in this rabbinical standard, while they weren't allowed to do anything, what they would allow is if a sheep were to fall into a ditch or into a hole because it certainly would provide some kind of income. Go make sure you get that thing. Make sure you don't lose what would be profitable to your home. Jesus' response is, isn't man worth more than that thing that you would work for? Here... Jesus' answer does absolutely contain an accusation of valuing possessions over people. American church, we are not so unlike the Pharisees that we value possessions over people. And I pray to God that that would not be said of this church. I hope and pray every day that we would come to be an example that we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we love others. I pray that our kids would see us do that. I pray that our kids would see that we would be willing, even when it's inconvenient, to love and care for those who are less fortunate. I pray that they would see us prioritize what's important to God. Because the Pharisees are 
the examples of what happens when we don't prioritize what's important to God, but we prioritize what's important to us. So they plot against him, and in verses 15 through 16, it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 15 and 16, we see that Jesus is wise and he is gentle. He would remove himself from the situation. Living out the example of Matthew 10, 16 through 18, where he would encourage the disciples, I'm sending you out into a hostile world. You need to be wise and gentle. Jesus is practicing wisdom before the disciples. And we see caution and priorities being sent here. I'm just going to make this one mark and we'll move on. Jesus is not concerned with the plots and intentions of the wicked. And can I encourage you, church, that if the majority of your time is trying to figure out the plot of the enemy, you're wasting your time. Jesus is wholly concerned with doing the things of God and is undistracted by what the enemy is doing because what does the word tell us? If he is for us, who can be against us? It says that the church will prevail against the gates of hell. It's not that we're locked outside. It says that we have the ability spiritually, should we walk in the will of God, to completely blow them through. Fear not the enemy and fear not the ways of this world. They're gonna do what they want, but you move forward in faith and see God work miraculously through you. Jesus did amazing things because he was more focused on the way and will of the Father than anything else. And then here, verses 17 through 21, as we bring this to a close, we see a prophetic description of Jesus' ministry. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so there's the verse I was speaking about earlier. We can wonder why Jesus continued on, but it says it right there. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen... My beloved, whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. It's Isaiah 42, I believe. But in this, we see that Jesus moves in the spirit of the Father. Jesus shows justice to the least. Jesus lets the spirit work. Jesus is gentle. Jesus will see victory. And Jesus always makes hope. Brothers and sisters, if we could get back to being, not back, we should strive that our life and our ministry would fit the same description. That in everything we do, even in our rest, that it would be the Spirit working abundantly through us as we have been blessed with the Holy Spirit and salvation. that the world would see us strive for justice, especially for the least of these, that we would be gentle in all circumstances, to see us move 
boldly because we know we will not lose this fight. Can I? Do you understand how important that point is? I have heard very prominent teachers tell the church, we're going to lose. That's the most uninspiring sentence I've ever heard. Be faithful, we're going to lose. Be faithful to what? Why would I be faithful to that? Church, you're not going to lose. The victory is already ours. We move forward in faith, not hope of victory, faith knowing that we already have victory. We pray fervently for the lost because we know God is able to save the lost. We show up at their doorstep constantly because we know that God is able to minister to them even when we cannot. We love the Lord in all circumstances, even when he takes everything away from us because we know he will make all things right again. The world will see victory as we move in victory and Jesus makes hope. The ministry of Jesus, even though we're speaking about Israel, he was going into a very dark and hopeless place. But both to the Jew and the Gentile, they were filled with hope, knowing that God still loves them. And God still hears them right where they are. As we talk about the Sabbath, Jesus is addressing the Sabbath and how we should be living in it, how we should um, actually rest in it, but still not over-prioritize the right things. This week, we see God's love for man in the Sabbath. This wasn't instituted to be a burden. This was instituted so that we could see that God loves us all dearly. If you are overworked today, God did not create you to be overworked. We do have to work, but life is not supposed to be just work. Take a break, take a rest. If there is rest in Jesus and we have no rest, we are doing something wrong. If the weight of life is heavy, we are not walking under the light yoke of Christ. And to the point of we need to take things seriously and make sure we prioritize what God says is serious, I will say, The Sabbath, even though it's little, and we don't talk about it often, is something that we should take seriously and not make it a religious experience like the rabbis did or the Pharisees here, but we would take it seriously knowing that God will bless us in it. Brothers and sisters, you won't lose a thing because you took a day. If you think you're gonna lose anything, you have forgotten that you serve the almighty God who possesses the cattle on a thousand hills. You lack for absolutely nothing. It'll be okay. And you know what? Look around the room very quickly. This is God's church. Should you lack, it is the church's responsibility. If you're working, don't be lazy. Hear me out here. If you're being lazy, I'm gonna tell you to go get a job. But if you're being obedient to God's way of life and you still need something, 
I'm not talking about want something, but need something. It is our duty as the church to make sure that we lack for absolutely nothing. In the book of Acts, they were so compelled by the love of Christ that those who had excess gave to those who lacked. And then the whole church came and lacked for nothing. But that happens when we're obedient to the word. That happens when we're willing to follow Jesus where he goes. And that happens when we love people the way that Jesus loves them. The Sabbath, we're call, or this is the end of these two Sabbath conversations, but don't overlook God's love for man in the midst of it. Amen? So why don't we stand as we bring this to a close and invite the worship team back up here, and I'm gonna pray for our meal. And if there's anybody in here who needs prayer, <clears throat> Please come to the front. We'll have leaders who are up here willing and wanting to pray for you. But in that, that is another one. Church, we are commanded to pray. For those of us that need anything, we are told to go and ask for prayer. If there's any of us who are sick or hurting, we are told to go to the leaders for prayer. And that's not because the leaders possess anything special. We have the same Holy Spirit within us, but we all come together and pray in faith knowing that God can do all things. Amen? So let's close out in prayer together. Lord, We want to thank you for your word and we want to thank you for the fact that God, even when we contend to make things wrong, Father, you have a wonderful way of bringing us back to what is right. That Lord, even though we can prioritize the the wrong things in the strangest way as we even saw here in the Sabbath, that Lord, we would tend to take a day of rest and turn it into a day of burden. Lord, Father, you still intervened to remind us, Father, how we could experience wholeness and obedience. And so, Lord, we pray that today, Lord, you would incline our hearts to love your word and to love your law and to love your ways of life, Father. And Lord, know that while it might might require us to sacrifice some of the things we want, I pray that you would fill us full of faith to know that we won't lack anything that we need. Because God, you are faithful and able to provide for your children. You are a good father, as your word says. And so Lord, we also pray for this meal that we're about to partake together, that Lord, you would bless it to our bodies. That Father, um, Lord, if there's any of us who can't cook, I pray that you'd bless the dish so that it would taste like we can. And that Lord... (laughs) You would bless us all in our travels home this afternoon. And Lord, we just surrender all these things to you and ask. And all the saints agreed and said, amen.